today. I'm joined now on the line by political economist at Trade Collective, Lebo Hang Peko, and we want to find out what we make of, uh, I guess, uh, some of these uh, members of the old guard coming out and uh, weighing in on some of our political developments. Melebo Hang, good evening to you, and uh, thank you so much for taking time out to speak to us. Uh, let's maybe start off here with uh, the uh, person of um, F.W. de Klerk. And I want us to start off with him so that we can get him out of the way and maybe speak about uh, some others. And uh, you would certainly uh, be aware of uh, uh, my own views about that particular one. I've made those very clear at the start of our conversation here. But uh, he's come out and said uh, and, and compared, I guess, you know, a state sanctioned crime against humanity as uh, something that would have been better. Uh, then, uh, of course, the clear failings and the patent failings of a democratically elected government. Does he have any moral grounding and moral standing to even say these kind of things? Yeah, I think I, yourself and also the listeners will know where my view would be on these sorts of matters. <laughs> I think that anybody, any former colonial leader has absolutely no moral standing, no ethical standing and no oxygen in any African country, in any, in any sovereign state. And I think this speaks to I want. I have to quote Nkrumah because basically mm. he said it's better to have it's better to have um, you know freedom which has peril rather than bondage with colonialism. Definitely. Something along those lines. Mm. And I think you know this this really speaks to that. And I think it's really unfortunate that I can't like South Africa. One of the things that we've done, which is really out of breaking ranks with other African countries, is to continue to pander to this kind of minority opinions and minority 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 thinking. I suppose. And I would, I would hope that. Turk represents a strong minority, but I'm not sure anymore because, I mean, the fact that he's given so much airtime begs the question, um, why are we listening and why is he still, why is he still speaking to us? Mm, I mean, he even has a foundation and, uh, you know, God forbid that uh, this is the same guy who many parents are still looking for their kids, uh, many of, of whom course. were buried in uh, shallow and unmarked graves, still says, look, yeah. you know, this this was a good idea when we started it off. Uh, I remember a conversation he had with Christian Amanpour a few years ago and he said, when we started apartheid, it was a good idea and we realized at the end there were some excesses to it. And I guess he speaks uh, on behalf of many in uh, the right-wing uh, elements within uh, uh, the white community in South Africa who still think that you know, apartheid was a good idea. It's just that the implementation yeah. may have been bad. Well, look, I mean, there is a lot of uh, there is a lot of the khaki the khaki community still amongst us. They may mm. not be wearing khakis explicitly anymore, but certainly politically and morally, there are many people, there are many white people, not only Afrikaners, many English people, many you know white people at large who feel that they're displaced, dislocated, um, and who feel that their entitlement has been taken away from them. And I think it's just the entitlement of whiteness. And that, that's the only thing that it can be when a people have invaded a country that doesn't belong to them, settled in it, and been given undue merit and privilege for so many hundreds of years, mm. and who continue to live peacefully, um, possibly, uh, possibly undeservedly peacefully. I mean, I mean, many other countries might have had a different outcome. But sure. I think, yes, people in this country chose a particular route. Um, some would call it the high ground, the, the bloodless ground, whatever people choose to call it. White people in this country got an easy ride, and Mr. Duterte got a particularly easy ride, and I wish you would appreciate that and do the rest of us the honor of, um, of, of his silence. Mm. And I think let's let's also be silent on that one and, and probably not give him any more energy. Let's take a look now at the person of one Tony Leon. And I must say, I recall uh, when the DA ran a campaign called uh, uh, Fight, Back. Fight Back mm-hmm. or Stop Zuma yeah. or Stop ANC. And it seems that yeah. uh, their partners more on the right uh, a wing of the political Have spectrum. appropriated the yes. exactly the same messaging. Mm. Well, well, isn't that funny? And I mean, it, it, it would also beg the question, um, it, it's interesting because it, it might actually show a particular political genealogy, I And I think the people 
who have been watching these things for the last while. Um, you know, I, think, I remember the fight back campaign, and I remember the late Mewini, um quite comically, tongue-in-cheek, but quite succinctly saying what they actually mean to say is fight black. Mm. And that was like under, that was under the very same um, that they told me Leon. And of course, now it's interesting that, of course, we don't plant plus adopt the very same. And I'm sure people are watching and thinking, so what actually is the difference between a DA of 20 years ago mm. and a Freedom Plus now of now? And I think for me, what Tony, what Tony Leon, Leon's appearance on the circuit actually takes, um, frankly, I think it takes the DA backwards. Mm. It goes back to that very same fight back, fight black, whatever the in- implicit embedded messaging may have been, mm. intentional or, or otherwise. And I actually think that it undoes so much of what... Um, uh, Abuti Musmaiman is trying yes. to build, which is a black brand, right? Which is a brand that people well, like us would say, yeah, we can put our ex behind mm. it. Um, and I think that he's, I think that it takes, a, I definitely, I think it takes the party backwards. Well, I, was little, I mean, I, I would venture to say that, you know, even the DA itself, despite, of course, the Freedom Front Plus taking much of uh, what used to be Tony Leon's campaigns, still continues mm. on the same vein and says, you know, vote for us to stop the ANC and the EFF, which I guess are deemed to uh, come from a particular political tradition, which is at odds mm. uh, with a, a more sort of center-right or even right-wing liberal kind of views of the DA. Yeah, and also in terms of numerical numbers, mm. would possibly pose a bigger threat. I think that's more of a messaging, because if you look at... There's not much substantive difference between most of the major party political manifesto. I mean, there's really not much. I mean, the, 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 some of the phrasing and the optics might be a bit more... Um, I mean, the EFF has a particular optic, ANC has a particular optic, VA, UGM, and whatever. But when you read between the lines, not much difference. Mainly, mainly centrist, slightly developmental, slightly, mm. you know, um, slightly... Social distributors worded slightly, you know, in, in, you know, with different nuances, of course. But I think what's interesting is that um, what 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 Freedom Front Plus is, is that an, you know an IFP, a UDM, um, and other sort of African-led, African-based parties clearly to them um, don't have any, don't pose any, you know, a PAC, you know, an example. Clearly, mm. to them are not even on the radar. So I think that's quite interesting that they zero in on these two, sure. which of course share a political pedigree. Okay. Uh, Mepeko, I'd like us to maybe pause there slightly and uh, take a quick spot break. When we come back, I want us to take a look at some of the utterances uh, that have been made by former President Thabo Mbeki coming in uh, from the cold, as uh, uh, one Bob Marley song uh, said. And uh, I must say, it, uh, uh, not only for the elements and uh, the weather that we saw yesterday when he made some of these remarks, but also seemingly coming in and joining the fray of the ANC once again. And uh, as uh, we've become accustomed to, also uh, shooting from the hip. Absolutely. It's seven minutes before 8 p.m. I'm in conversation with a political economist at Trade Collective, uh, Lebohang Peko, and uh, we're talking about uh, many of, uh, I guess, uh, uh, members of the old guard across the political spectrum coming out of the woodwork and saying all manner of things. Give us a ring. I'd love to hear your perspectives. Give me a ring on 089-110-3377. Now, um, Lebohang I want us maybe to draw our attention now to former President Thabo Mbeki, who, uh, as I said yesterday, you know, as I said before we went to the break, coming in from the cold, literally and otherwise. Uh, and uh, one of the key things that he said, and I want us to maybe focus on two things. One is uh, his rationale for why he could not campaign under President Jacob Zuma. And he feels that from a personal perspective, he would have been dishonest in peddling the narrative that they have a good story to tell. And uh, I'm quite surprised that, you know, he sits alongside people who, who carried, 
the same message to door-to-door campaigns. I mean, David Makura and many others, including now the president of the ANC, Cyril Ramaphosa, was part of the self-same administration that campaigned on a ticket that for the past two decades or so, we've had a good story to tell. What has changed? Possibly what has changed is the political landscape and, and the ground that we're standing on. So the, the relationship between Mbeki and Zuma was fractured, certainly from the, from the moment that um, Mbeki fired Mbeki Zuma, um, and of course built and, and shifted the political fortunes of this country. Um, that, that shifted it entirely. And, and the other thing, of course, is post-Bulugwani, there's an argument that says that Mbeki mis, perhaps misread the ground in his attempt to, to, to take on the ANC leadership for a third term, which would have been unprecedented, um, although perhaps in, in, in hindsight it may not have been such a bad thing, who knows. And, and, and the, the politics of grudge holdings shouldn't be underestimated. And I wouldn't want to suggest them that, that Mr. Mbeki is not is holding a grudge, but I wouldn't want to imply that he isn't capable of having been angry and feeling quite slighted by what has happened since then. Remember that, of course, post-Bulugwani, that was a time when his T-shirt was being burnt, he was being booed, and all of this under the sanction and seemingly with the complicity of former President Zuma. So none of this should be mistaken for some sudden magnanimous towards the ANC. Um, and I just think that it's as simple as that. I think that he has been very, um, he was put aside in a quite an ugly manner. Um, I was very unhappy about it. Many people were very unhappy about it. I think it was a potential constitutional crisis. Um, and I think that certainly since then, they have the ground beneath this country and beneath the ANC hasn't been the same. Mm-hmm. Let's maybe come back to, uh, I guess, uh, one of the substantive policy questions that he addressed. And surprisingly, I mean, uh, you know, for, for someone who says campaign for the ANC, the first shot he takes from a policy perspective is a shot at one of the conference re- resolutions and what one would think is part of the electoral promise of the ANC, which is uh, the uh, commitment to nationalize the uh, Reserve Bank and also, uh, I guess, uh, add onto its mandate some form of dual approach that either focuses on employment or growth. Or, or any other uh, socioeconomic measure? Mm. Yeah, one of my difficulties I have with a lot of um, this is, of course, um, collective responsibility and the extent to which that plays a part in any of this. And one would imagine that any senior standing of any movement, any political party, especially one who has been at the head of it and who has been at the helm of a lot of the policy-making decisions, possibly have to take some of the responsibility, whether in absentia, for how some of those decisions have played themselves out. Um, and, and, and I find it quite difficult to align this breaking of rank with, a kind, of, with, with kind of a principled position that says all for one and one for all, and that any mistake is a collective mistake. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, when, when you unpack this debate, I mean, you're an economist as well, and you would certainly have a particular view. Um, and, and I often get a sense that there's two parallel debates here that are underway. One is around the ownership uh, of, the, of the central bank and the role of some of the 2,000 private shareholders uh, who have shares in the central bank. And then the other one, of course, relates to the mandate uh, of the bank, uh, especially as it relates to the use of interest rates to rein in prices and to ensure uh, price stability, and whether or not mm. that is too narrowly defined as a mandate uh, for such a key monetary policy uh, uh, institution. 
So, I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a lot to say that um, the Reserve Bank could arguably be doing a lot more. It could actually be looking at stuff around employment and employment creation. Mm. It could be measuring the rate at which jobs are being, are being, are being, are being created within the economy. It could actually be actually measuring the businesses which are being created and the extent to which those businesses are, are able to retain, the, um, employ, uh, retain staff but also the extent to which those businesses are able to be viable because that also galvanizes the economy. Um, some, some reserve banks, I mean, different, uh, different countries have different models, have also gone as far as to say that they don't, they're not necessarily inflation targeting only, but they're also targeting um, currency strength, and they do you know, use different tools around that. And one would argue that you know, printing money is probably the one thing you shouldn't do in order to strengthen your currency, but by holding on to reserves and, mm. and, and doing different things to manipulate the strength of a currency. In this country, we've been in the habit, not in so much of a habit, but we've allowed our currency to go into free fall at different key moments. And the problem with that is that once it once it dips, it's incredibly difficult to you know to hoid up. Um, unlike what some of our you know some MEPs have argued, you don't just hoid up the rand. You know, there's a whole bunch of steps and and, and you know gathering uh, sentiment that go into it. So the different um, mechanisms, which I don't think that we've been using to some extent, mm. and especially as a developmental sure. economy, we're not a middle income country. We are still very much a developing economy. Last question on my end, and uh, I can't let you go without taking the opportunity to get your your question in this regard. On the other side of uh, 8pm, it's now 8pm, we're going to be catching up with um, uh, the president of the Pan-Africanist Congress of Azania, an organization you uh, would certainly be familiar with. Any questions you might have for them? Um, Sure. What are the... Put you on the spot then, eh? Hello? I put you on the spot there. No, not at all. In fact, so what would be the three things that they need to do in order to um, lift the lift the economy? Um, what are the three steps that they need to take in order to bring some kind of land restitution um, and, and make it a viable, uh, a viable, tangible thing rather than just a slogan? Mm. And the last thing would be, yeah, how would they? What would they do with the Reserve Bank? Melebo Hangpeko, always a pleasure to catch up with you. I really appreciate your time and I assure you that uh, we will certainly pose those questions to uh, PAC President Nerias Muloto on the other side of this. I'll be listening. Awesome.